Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. It's time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nugget, and we're coming to you on Election Day across the state of Georgia. There are municipal contests, mayor, city council um, members. Uh, there are T-splosts and E-splosts, E-splosts on a number of ballots around the state. And uh, the premier race, I think it's safe to say, is the uh, uh, contest for the mayor of the city of Atlanta, although I get it if you're what, listening to us down in Valdosta uh, or Savannah or other areas of the state, you may say, well, not so much for us. But the simple fact of the matter is that Atlanta is still the economic engine of Georgia, and what happens here does have a big impact on people across the state of Georgia. So we're going to talk about the elections on the show today. Um, Before I introduce the panel, though, one of the people on the show today, who I'll talk about a little bit more in a minute, Chuck Cook, reminded us that it's been a year since the 2020 presidential election, which took place on November 3rd, 2020, a year ago on Tuesday, which is kind of astonishing to think about, especially when you think of the fact that there are some 80 percent, according to most polls of Republicans, who believe that still believe to this day, a year later, that Joe Biden did not win the 2020 presidential election. Um, Tamar Hallerman is with us on Tuesdays, as she always is. She's a senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tamar, did you, I didn't think about that until Chuck Cook brought it up, and it's been a year. I know, but if you think about it, this election keeps being litigated again and again, month after month, day (laughs) after day. So it truly does not feel like this election is behind us. We also had the runoff going into January. Um, What a year, truly. (laughs) Astonishing. Yeah. Um, So we also were joined today by Professor Tammy Greer, professor of political science at Clark Atlanta University. Um, Hi, Tammy. Thanks for being with us on Election Day. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's such an exciting day. Well, you know, one of the things that I'm always interested in with you is you really are uh, someone who focuses a lot on driving uh, uh, people to get engaged, civically engaged. And one of the things that's interesting is so far we have seen very little interest among voters in the Atlanta mayor's race, which I would assume must be very distressing uh, to somebody who is involved in the effort the way you are. It, it is, yet um, I've had several conversations over the past couple of weeks where people keep the, their interests private. <laughs> And so it may not be out in the public or according to polls. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that a little more in a, a couple of minutes, as a matter of fact. We're also joined today by Chuck Cook. Chuck Cook is one of the most highly respected immigration attorneys in the country. He not only works in the corporate world where he helps companies understand how they can um, deal with immigration issues, of various uh, kinds, but he's also deeply involved in working on issues um, in in the the sector of of undocumented immigrants, helping them deal with the problems that they face. Chuck, thank you for being with us, and thank you for reminding us of the anniversary. It's always a joy to be here with you, Bill. 
Well, I appreciate your saying that. Um, and we're joined by the CEO of Mundo Hispanico Digital, Renee Alegria. Renee, I saved you for last because right before the show, you let me know that you have a brand new initiative that really does have some relevance to what we talk about routinely on Political Rewind. And I said I'm more than happy to let you say a couple of words about it. Tell us about what you are, uh, the coalition you're, you've uh, become part of. Sure, no problem. And, and thank you for having me on your show. As always, Bill, you and your team. Um, this week, uh, I'm very happy and proud to announce uh, that we will be announcing a joint partnership with the Atlanta Voice and the Georgia Asian Times in the formation of Georgia's first ethnic media collaborative. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a big deal as it heralds the shifting sands of Georgia's multi-ethnic reality. Um, you know, what we saw in the election, the presidential election of last year, as well as just the changing demographics of what constitutes a Georgian. Things are different than they ever have mm. been, and they're continuing to change. And I know that uh, Mundo Hispanico's partnership with Janice Ware at the Atlanta Voice and Lee Wong at Georgia Asian Times is just going to solidify our, uh, you know, putting... Uh, our leaders, both political, business, uh, education, et cetera, on notice that we are here to give the best possible information to our constituents. So, our users, yeah, what does that mean? Are you going to be sharing content with one another? Is that basically what that means? Uh, there will be some of that, certainly, but for, for the most part, we're going to be announcing a series of events uh, of our communities working together. Um, again, uh, whether it be interviewing politicians, business leaders, uh, education advocates, etc., and asking them what they are doing for our particular communities as a whole. You know, Tamar, that is the reason I, I it, it seems self-evident to me that that, that is worth uh, our uh, uh, mentioning on the show is that, as Renee points out, it really does tell us that Metro Atlanta is uh, changing dramatically and will continue to in the years to come, doesn't it? And as we're going to talk about with especially a lot of these local elections that are happening today, um, you're seeing a lot of these dynamics play out in races for mayor. What does it mean when you yes. say something like, let's keep Marietta, Marietta? Um, and yeah. so I think it is an important initiative. Well, I'm glad you mentioned all that. Let's start by talking about the uh, mayoral races. And let's start tomorrow with the uh, mayor of the city of Atlanta. Um the uh, polling is, frankly, all over the map. AJC has had the, uh, I think, the most followed public-facing uh, 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 poll, and, and your polling has shown pretty consistently that it's a two-way race between Felicia Moore and Kasim Reed. Uh, but there are 14 candidates in this race, and um, no one seems to be on the verge of a win without a runoff. And if turnout is really low— tomorrow, really low, all bets are off. In very, very low turnout elections, polls end up not having much value because anything can happen, yes? Exactly, and whose supporters are the most fired up right now? Um, and Kasim Reed and Felicia Moore are the, are the two candidates who have consistently been at the top of most polling that we've seen, including the AJC's polling. Um, and Kasim Reed especially is such a well-known entity. His supporters 
really love him. His opponents really hate him. And it's a question of who's able to, to get their folks out. Um, what's been interesting following the polling is a late surge um, in the support of, of Andrew, or sorry, Andre Dickens, um, city councilman, um, who initially mm-hmm. was hanging out in the low single digits for a lot of the race, but who in some polling I've seen in the last couple of weeks has gotten up, you know, some even as close as to 20%. So he's going to be a wild card that we're really going to be watching today. But as you mentioned, 14 candidates, um, and especially five kind of top tier candidates makes it pretty likely that we're going to have a runoff on November 30th. And I think all of the campaigns are bracing for that possibility. Yeah. um, Tammy, um, let me ask you a question. Um, As I follow this race, one of the questions I've asked myself repeatedly, I don't vote in the city of Atlanta. I live in in, um, greater Decatur, as we call it. But um, I've asked myself repeatedly, have the top tier candidates, or for that matter, any of the candidates, distinguished themselves from one another in a big enough way that I have a clear choice in this race, no matter who it is. And I wonder what you think as you've watched the race unfold. Um, They have, and it depends on the questions that they're being asked. So if there are clear, specific um, questions about clear, specific policy matters, then you can see the thought process of the individual candidates. Yet, if you're asking them general questions or just looking at their television ads, then they all seem the same. So if we dig deeper, then, then we can find that there are clear, stark differences in not only policy, also approaches um, that each one of them have. Well, okay, so you're right, of course. And, and what I should have maybe said is the number one issue by far has been uh, fighting crime in the city of Atlanta. And, and I wonder if on that front, um, you've seen enough differences among the candidates to be able to decide who's uh, uh, got an, an individualized uh, program for dealing with crime. So, yes, um, they, some of them take a proactive approach, majority take a reactive approach. Um, I've seen uh, one or two of the candidates actually listen to their opponents and almost um, bend or accept some of their opponents' uh, thought processes when it comes to approach of crime. Um, as someone who used to work in the criminal justice field, um, it's important to know that you know the criminal justice system catches you when every other system fails. So if you know your education system fails, your um, uh, food distribution fails, housing fails, then the criminal justice system will catch you all. So the, if we're looking at preventing crime, then we should really focus on those root causes and those systems that break before individuals get to the criminal justice system. Um, thank you for that. Renee, as of, I think, the end of early voting, and I think I'm right about this, we've only seen about 10 percent of the voters in uh, registered voters uh, turn out to the polls. And in looking at polling by the AJC, as recently as the middle of last month, we saw more than 40% of voters still undecided about who they would vote for. Now, to some extent, that means that any number of those voters probably aren't going to vote at all. They're not undecided. They're not interested. But what, what, what do you take from this notion that people do not seem energized at this point about the election, or are we going to be proven wrong by the end of the day today when people do turn out? I, I do. I, I think that 
there is a fatigue out there with so many. Uh, you know, we're, we're bombarded each day by, uh, you know, the polarization of our political establishment, the system. Uh, I do think that there is, uh, just to kind of echo what folks have already said, a, a some a candidate distinguishing themselves from the other candidates. And so it's difficult, I think, for, say, your average voter to say, okay, who who really represents my interests, my family's interests? What, what I what I mean, it looks like we're going to go into a, a, a runoff. Right. And I think there's going to be a, a surge of energy with that runoff in that this today is going to filter the top two candidates for the rest of Georgia, or excuse me, Atlanta Metro to vote in. And I think that's where we're going to see um, a more energized electorate. I do think that it's interesting to, 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 to see, say, for example, Reed be so polarizing. Um, I think that there is something about that that does distinguish his, his entire candidacy as in will that negativity spill over into the coming years. Um, that's just something that we always read about with, with Kasim Reed's candidacy and, and, and what the investigations are going to really come out and point to. So we'll see. He's really dressed yet. Uh, I actually did vote already. I did early voting. And uh, this is the first election with our new voting rules as well. Not only has it been a, been a year, but... And I will tell you, it took longer. Uh, it took longer. Uh, there was basically nobody in line when I went to vote uh, in the, the North Fulton Annex. But it took at least five minutes longer to vote. If that becomes, if that is the new normal, um, you're going to be handing out a lot of water in lines next year. But more importantly, people are going to be turned off because it was it was somewhat more of a hassle to do this. So it's not just why did it take longer. What, because the what, I'm sorry, what was it? Okay. Oh, yeah. The process that you go through once you sh- should stand in front of the individual who begins to check you seems to have at least two additional steps before you get the little card to go stick in the machine. And then once you stick your little card in the machine, you have to actually push the buttons and say, I vote. In the past, you just take your card and go away. You have to wait another 15, 20 seconds while it tabulates your vote. I don't know why it takes any time at all. It's a computer. Uh, and then you finally get to walk out. But it, it was definitely a longer process perceptually. And I think that's going to have a negative impact going forward as well. Not just who am I going to vote for in a mayoral race, but do I even want to take the extra time to vote? Because I, I think this year we probably won't see it, but next year I think it'll be massive lines next year. That's certainly a dynamic to watch. Um, One thing I want to piggyback off of is comments that that Renee made just about kind of the general confusion of the race. And I think how a lot of voters aren't sure how they want to vote. Um, Obviously, Kasim Reed is Kasim Reed. He has his supporters who love him. Um, But there hasn't been, um, you know, this one anti, you know, kind of this one anybody but Kasim Reed candidate to kind of pop, you know, to, to kind of really distinguish themselves so that everyone who hates Kasim can kind of go and follow them. Um, likewise, there hasn't been, you know, a candidate that a lot of black voters seem to really be going toward. There doesn't seem to be one candidate that gets the youth vote or that gets the Buckhead vote. And I think because of that, it's led to a lot of, um, 
if not confusion, um, then a lot of voters not sure who they want to pick, or it leads to this dynamic that's a little bit muddy right now. And so just as Renee was saying, I think we're going to get a lot more clarity at the end of the night tonight when, you know, as we said, it's looking very likely that Kasim Reed's going to end up end up in a runoff. Who is that other candidate in the runoff? That'll Then it'll be very easy to distinguish, okay, if I'm an anybody but Kasim person, I'm going to vote for that person, the Felicia Moore, the Andre Dickens, whoever. All right, we're going to watch the Atlanta race closely. I want to move to some of the other races and talk about them in a in a broader and more general uh, way tomorrow. Um, you know, you know, uh, having covered Congress for a very long time, although you were not around for Tip O'Neill, you're not old enough to have dealt with him as Speaker of the House, but you do know that Tip O'Neill famously said all politics is local, and we also know that doesn't seem to be true at all anymore. Typically, mayoral contests are nonpartisan, and there's a reason for that. People are dealing with issues closest to home. Who's going to fix the potholes? You know, who's going to deal with the basic day-to-day issues in a city that are important to citizens? But this year, we are seeing the nationalization, to some extent, of mayoral races. So, um, for instance, in Sandy Springs— where longtime Republican uh, leader Rusty Paul is running for re-election. He's opposed by Dante Carter, who has the backing of Fulton County Democrats for his race. Fulton County Republicans have uh, put out a pretty nasty flyer uh, saying, basically, we don't want city uh, Sandy Springs to become the city of Atlanta. I mean, that's one example. In Marietta, Um, You've got a Democratic councilwoman challenging the incumbent mayor, uh, Steve uh, Tumlin, uh, in Tucker. The former chairman of the DeKalb County Republican Party is uh, an incumbent who's facing off now against a Democrat who is a field director for President Obama in 2008. And we could go on and talk about others quite like that. But suddenly partisan politics is uh, becoming uh, a part of mayoral races this year. And just how kind of nakedly that that some candidates are are kind of saying, oh, yeah, I, you know, affiliate with a certain party or I at least lean that way, kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, whereas in the past that might have been a little more hidden. And as you mentioned, a ton of national dynamics that are um, kind of making their way down to these local races. What does it mean to say that, that you're from Marietta and what should Marietta look like? Um, issues of race, issues of crime, like what we saw with some of these flyers popping up in San Francisco, or sorry, not San Francisco, Sandy Springs, um, you know, with uh, with protesters and cops in riot gear and and that sort of thing. So it, it is a very interesting dynamic. And it'll be curious to see, especially with a lot of these more progressive challengers to some of these sitting mayors, if any of them are able to, to topple these incumbents. Chuck, that, that, tomorrow's mentioned that slogan, Keep Marietta Marietta, which Steve Tumlin is using up there. Um, and it, it seems to be a suggestion that uh, it's been a Republican town for a long time with the Republican values. Why would you want to elect a city councilwoman who's identified with the Democratic Party. Well, I, you know, there's a lot of ways you could take keep Marietta Marietta. You could be innocent and say, we just want old, tiny politics here in Marietta. But I don't know if you've been to Marietta recently, but Marietta's changed dramatically um, in the last decade. Uh, and a big part of that is because of who has moved into Marietta and who is making their political voices known. And 
And I see this all over Metro Atlanta. We see it here in Roswell, where I am, in different city council races, down in, down in DeKalb, where you are. It's, uh, I think it's just a question of everybody becoming more politically aware because of social media uh, and thus bringing those politics. We see it in school boards all across the country, right? School board members who are generally elected being attacked for different positions on whether to wear masks or not. And that's being politicized. I think this is just the beginning. This is the first election where this, I think, is going to nationalize the topics of all of these types of races. Tammy, it remains to be seen whether trying to tag a candidate with a partisan label in a mayoral race will, in fact, work or not. We'll see when the results come in uh, tonight. But... um, it, it, the mayor of the current mayor of Tucker, who's running for re-election, Frank Alman, uh, made an interesting statement in a story the AJC ran. He says, "If you're going to run on a party, you've got to own everything about that party. Municipal races are designed as nonpartisan for a lot of good reasons." Now he says that, knowing he's facing off against a self-proclaimed Democratic opponent, and I assume would uh, suggest that, uh, that the Democrats are too liberal for the city of Tucker. Nevertheless, his, his statement makes some sense in municipal elections, doesn't it? It makes a lot of sense because when we look at some of the bread and butter issues of local um, and municipal um, life, then it's not really, uh, it should not be a partisan divide between, you know, what are the elements that, that are handled. I think it's also interesting for us to note that um, putting people in these boxes is, is, is a creation of wedge issues um, when it comes to taking national issues and boiling them down to uh, the municipal um, uh, elections. So if we're looking at school boards, if we're looking at mayoral races or even city council races, if we can nationalize these local matters, then what we tend to do and what we tend to find um, is that, you know, you can have a mixed bag on a federal level. You, depending on the state that you live in, you can have uh, one particular party that dominates state-level politics, and then you try to have um, on the local level issues that are are matter more toward the, the people that hits every day. Yet, if we can take those partisan items and brings them down to the municipal level, what you tend to do is to discourage people, some people, from participating on municipal levels, which then corners the market for a political ideology to take over municipal offices, which then extends um, some reach. So we have to be really careful on polarizing. We have to be really careful on driving um, people into uh, a political ideology when it comes to municipal elections, because this hits us every single day. You know, I think that makes so much sense. Tamara, I think you'll relate to what I'm going to say here. I I used to, I I spent an enormous amount of time, as certainly you did, covering uh, Congress, covering the White House. I used to think there was something very exciting about being able to cover Washington politics. And, And I got to the point later in my career as a reporter of realizing that um, it was almost counterproductive to cover Congress. I mean, they were incapable of accomplishing anything. And I found myself getting increasingly interested 
in coming back home to Georgia, to Atlanta, and covering state and city politics, where in fact, despite, especially in a legislature that's divided by along partisan lines, they're actually able to accomplish something. And cities are able to accomplish practical matters. And I think you relate to that. And the idea that we're going to suddenly see municipalities turn partisan is very discouraging. I 100% agree with that. I had a government teacher in high school who used to make us sit through town council meetings in the little college town I grew up in. And I hated it. I hated it so much. But you're right. After 10 years of covering Congress, you realize, oh, this is where the real decisions get made in town councils at the city level. And there is something that's going to be lost if this becomes really partisan. Renee? I, I, I think that we're living in extraordinary times we're seeing a generation shift that we haven't seen since boomers broke away from all things their parents. And with that is going to come a lot of uh, conflict. You know, we're going to see the keep Marietta, Marietta type symbolism be, you know, shown throughout the country, frankly. And we're also going to see folks rise up and begin to to participate. I mean, in the last coming years, we've seen uh, more more women candidates be involved in, in politics, people of color that, you know what, we can do this, you know, is what the, this collective new shift is saying. And I think that that is something to be optimistic about in that it's part of the process of our American government. Renee Alegria, thank you for ending the first segment of this show on a positive note. I appreciate (laughs) it. We do have to get to a break when we come back uh, more about the elections on Political Rewind. Immigration attorney Chuck Cook, political science professor Tammy Greer of Clark Atlanta University, Renee Alegria, Mundo Hispanico Digital, and my Tuesday partner, Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter of the AJC on the show today. Uh, well, Tamar, your home state of Virginia is uh, the premier, has the, the premier contest going today. A race for governor, Glenn Youngkin, the Republican who has gained ground that most people never expected he would be able to in a state that has become blue against Terry McAuliffe, running to become governor once again. Um, and, and the reason we want to talk about this race, uh, Tamar, is uh, because in many ways it's a laboratory for the ideas that are going to be used in the 2022 election here in Georgia and elsewhere. And if you don't mind my pointing you even f- uh, more f- in a more focused direction, it has been fascinating that of all things, education has emerged as the top issue in this race. Tamar? Yeah, this is the first real statewide race that we're getting since the 2020 elections and that's or since any, you know, general elections. And that's why Virginia governor's races are so interesting. It's always an off um, it's an off year election. And because of that, you can see the kind of swings in voter attitudes after a candidate wins the presidency. Um, And so it's a great barometer for what a general population thinks of the the party in the White House, the party in Congress. And you're seeing the blowback now in a state that's been pretty solidly blue over the last uh, 12 years. 
um, just how much Biden's approval rating has gone down and how that's manifesting itself down the ballot. And as you mentioned, schools, uh, you know, it's so interesting that that's the the big issue, but it incorporates so many of the culture war issues that have animated Republican voters um, really since the Tea Party wave in 2010. And for me, that was a real watershed year in the way that I thought about Virginia. It was interesting in in 2008 when Barack Obama won, when I grew up, uh, Virginia was such a was such a red state, but 2010 was when you really saw a, a realignment with a lot of kind of Tea Party candidates rising. Um, you talk about school choice, you talk about mandates for masks for vaccines, you talk about uh, so-called critical race theory and how much input parents should have when it comes to what's what uh, is being taught to their kids, and all of those dynamics are playing out. So, uh, Chuck Cook, um, critical race theory, mask mandates, Youngkin has jumped on these things as examples of how a Democratic state, a, a Democratic governor would enforce, would, would allow critical race theory to be taught, wants mask mandates to be in place. And this apparently has gained an enormous amount of, attract, of traction for Youngkin. But I also want to talk about a very specific ad that at, in the last days of the race emerged and also seems to be animating uh, Republican-oriented voters. It's an ad that features a mother. Her name is uh, Laura Murphy, and she talks about her experience when her high school-age son came home to tell her he'd been assigned to read the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, Beloved, by Nobel Prize-winning author Toni Morrison. Here's a little bit of that ad. As a parent, it's tough to catch everything. So when my son showed me his reading assignment, my heart sunk. It was some of the most explicit material you can imagine. I met with lawmakers. They couldn't believe what I was showing them. Their faces turned bright red with embarrassment. They passed bills requiring schools to notify parents when explicit content was assigned. It was bipartisan. It gave parents a say, the option to choose an alternative for my children. I was so grateful. But then Governor Terry McAuliffe vetoed it twice. Chuck Cook, uh, beloved, is in a very explicit novel. There are sexual themes. There are scenes of tremendous violence. It's a book about slavery. It's a novel about um, a generation's families living through the horrors of slavery. And... You know, you listen to that and you say, gee, maybe parents do have some right to be involved in what their children uh, hear. But this is going to be a theme. Parents need to retake control of what their children learn in a broader sense that we're going to hear in Republican campaigns across Georgia next year. Where were my parents when I had to read The Scarlet Letter? Gosh, that was a boring book. You know, it's... uh, (laughs) It's been a long time. Toni Morrison wasn't writing when I was in high school. But interesting. first of all, her son was a senior in high school taking an AP English class. Well, of course he's going to read stuff that's more, more, uh, more difficult uh, to, to, to deal with. But I, I found, frankly, this is very typical of, of ads uh, that in a very partisan race. Uh, and I, at the end of the day, uh, people want to be able to have control of their own lives, of what of their kids' lives, and push them in the direction they want them to go. Uh, was it appropriate for Terry McAuliffe to veto the bill? I don't know. 
Uh, was it, is it appropriate for an English teacher in an AP advanced English class to have somebody read a novel about slavery and what and the horrific effects of slavery? Probably is. Um, but what's happening in Virginia, I think, is even more important on this context. Who has not been involved in that race? Uh, Donald Trump. Clearly, Youngkin is a, is a Trump-endorsed guy, but literally, he has kept Trump away because I think he believes that if Trump comes, he loses, which speaks a great – and this is something that our own lieutenant governor keeps talking about here in Georgia. Uh, I, think, so I think if he does win, I think the other lesson, besides that all politics is local, is keep Donald Trump away. Um, so I find this uh, conversation fascinating. Um, Neil Gaiman, who wrote um, American Gods, right, along with other books, um, an article came out where he noted that fiction builds empathy um, so that we can see the realities that some people experience. And we put it in fictional form so that others can be able to absorb the realities of others, right? And, and as parents, we all understand that we want to shield our children from some of those realities, yet that is not reality because such items exist. So um, I often find that experiences of others, especially um, of non-white heterosexual Christian males, seems to be a challenge for um, a majority to accept that their reality is different from, you know, what another is. So however disturbing, um, you know, the images are in the book that pales in comparison with the thousands and hundreds of thousands of people that lived through that time and had to make some challenging decisions when it comes to their person, yet they didn't have autonomy over their person to actually make um, some everyday decisions. So I find, um, again, municipal issues such as education has been taken and polarized and use um, as a weapon in order to divide individuals rather than taking the opportunity to understand that this award-winning text is used to provide a window into the experiences of others. And can we not use that as um, a, a, a space to, to um, have a conversation? I, I think this is Renee. I think that uh, it's really difficult to, to educate any generation without having them look at the other and learn from their experiences. And I think that any time a parent shields their children from learning about the other's experience, a parent is holding their children back from the empathy that Tammy just pointed out is integral in our future success as, as a society, right? Um, but that's almost beside the point, right? What, what I see here happening, uh, you know, particularly with CRT, you know, I mean, let's ignore the fact that for, for you know, how many, how many generations have we only read books by white males and that was fine, right? And suddenly CRT, which is not even taught in school at all, zero, nothing, is, being the, is the wedge issue that is galvanizing parents to say, I don't want CRT taught to my children. There are so many things wrong with a statement like that, so many lies embedded in that statement. You have misinformation. You've got the role social media 
plays in, in, in our in our world, in our in our personal family dynamic, and of course how we vote. So, you know, I, I hope that whatever happens, we're going to assess, we're going to take stock, and we're going to proceed accordingly with misinformation. Um, we're going to actually call a lie a lie, right? And vote in folks who are not lying. That's simple. Tamar, let, let me let you close off this part of the conversation, but, but add to this. Um, first of all, I, from my point of view, Beloved is one of the most important novels I read in my whole life. It is a brilliant, brilliant novel. It is very frightening. It is very disturbing. And that's exactly what it needs to be because it deals with such a horrifying part of American history. That said, this really is part of a larger question that we're going to see over and over again next year, right? Which is... Republicans are going to hit away here in this state and others on parental control, parents having more say in many aspects of their children's education, whether it's mask wearing, critical race theory, or anything else, right? That's going to be a big issue next year based on what we're seeing in Virginia. I mean, and this is such an animating issue for voters. And we're not only talking about the base that you know, all those culture war issues get them animated, but this might also be a way for them to win back a lot of the suburban voters who over the last five years have drifted toward the Democrats. Um, you talk about decisions that parents are making with their kids and home and family, and I think they see this as a way to be able to get those voters back into the fold. Um, this year in Virginia, as I mentioned, off your election. So it's all about turning out your base. Talk about an, an animating issue for voters and angry people vote. Um, and so yeah. this is a way to get your people out. So it'll be curious you know, to see if Youngkin is able to pull this out. And if he is successful, you will see this replicated in Georgia. I promise you that. We've already started seeing rumblings of that uh, with Burt Jones and some other conservative candidates here. I think you just made a, the, the central point. Angry people vote. One of the things Democrats are most worried about in Virginia is that their base doesn't seem energized to get out for a McAuliffe. So we'll watch that unfold tomorrow. Exactly. And Terry McAuliffe, I mean, he's not exactly the most inspiring candidate for a lot of Democratic voters. Um, he is the <laughs> definition of the he's the definition of the Democratic establishment, um, you know, close to Hillary Clinton, close to a lot of big money donor, donors and a lot of younger voters, a lot of voters of color, uh, African-Americans, Latino. They're just not excited when they see a middle aged white guy like that. Um, you know, it's not like he's pitching any sort of crazy ideas. And so because of that, he's not exciting. And then you have Republicans very animated. Well, it's going to be what we're going to see tomorrow is whether Democrats or Republicans think they are going to move into 2022 with the wind at their back. If McAuliffe loses, Democrats are going to be terrified about what could happen to them in elections uh, next year. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back with more on Political Rewind. Chuck Cook, we can't have one of the country's top immigration attorneys on the show without asking you about at least one or two immigration headlines. The first one being the Biden administration considering paying uh, essentially uh, settlements to uh, families who were separated at the border. They're looking, we're told, 
at payments of something like $450,000 for each family that went through a separation. My understanding, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, is that we're talking about maybe 5,000 families involved in this at a cost of $1 billion. And this is, talk about an election issue. Republicans are already pushing back saying, are you kidding? These were people coming into the country illegally and now we're going to reward them for this. It's a very tricky issue for President Biden, Chuck. Uh, This is yet another example of the Biden administration not getting in front of an issue. Um, This is the Trump administration that tore children from their parents, at least 700 of whom still have not been reunited with their mom and dad. Uh, there's a lawsuit pending. Uh, these kids and their parents are going to win that lawsuit. The question is how much they're going to win. The reason you settle a lawsuit is so you pay less than you would possibly pay in that lawsuit. So rather than paying maybe $10 billion, $1 billion seems kind of like it's a deal. But this, has, this is not children separated by the Biden administration. Uh, and yes, people came across the border lawfully seeking asylum and then were separated from their mothers and dads illegally under our law uh, and then torn apart and put into a foster care system in the United States that was overloaded. Again, angry people vote, angry people call their congressmen. Remember how angry we were that Trump was separating moms and babies together? Well, this is the consequence. This is how we deal with those issues in our society. It's with money. And so paying people you know, what perceptually seems to be a lot of money would never have had to happen if the Trump administration hadn't illegally torn children from their parents. Well, Renee, Chuck's suggesting that the Biden administration, which isn't unusual for them, is not doing a very good job framing the issue or communicating it. No, I, I agree completely with what, what Chuck just said. Um, you know, Mundo Hispanico covers this every day when it was happening. It was just such a dramatic turn as we knew more and more about how little we knew of the families that were separated at the border and how they were held in cages, these kids, etc. It just wasn't the way a civilized country should be acting, right? Um, it was treating folks as inhuman. And, you know, I mean, the, we were all irate in the Hispanic community, obviously. And what was frustrating is how that anger did not spill over into the general market mainstream, right? We, we watched it be reported, but I don't think folks felt what just was happening and the horrors that were happening. I, I think Chuck is right on in that 450,000. Uh, while it sounds like a huge number, um, it really isn't given what these folks went through. It's, you know, it's going to be politicized. Obviously, these folks are going to be demonized. The, the Biden administration, the, these, these individuals who aren't citizens, quote, and don't deserve our monetary compensation. The fact is, the United States is in the wrong and something has to be done and justice hopefully will prevail. And like Chuck said, it's America. It's about money. 
Okay, um, if, if you all w will allow me, uh, first of all, thank you for that conversation. There's a lot more we could talk about with immigration, but, but I don't want the show to end today without at least spending a couple of minutes on what happened in the United States Supreme Court yesterday when the court heard arguments about the Texas abortion law. Tamar, let's set the stage for this. Uh, the Supreme Court really was not asked in the, the two cases, one brought by the Department of Justice, another brought by an agency in, in the state of Texas, um, it was not asked whether Roe v. Wade is legal or not. It was asked whether the unique nature of the Texas law would allow for uh, people to sue claiming it to be unconstitutional, right? Yeah, it's an extremely unusual enforcement mechanism. Um, normally, you would go and go ahead and sue the attorney general of the state or kind of officials who sort of de facto represent that policy. Um, but what's so interesting about SB 8 is that it delegates the sole power of enforcing this law. Um, it kind of deputizes private individuals rather than state officials. Um, so it allows anyone, even if you don't live in Texas, to bring a lawsuit in state court against anyone who performs an abortion or even helps make one possible. So you could be the Uber driver driving a woman to her abortion ap appointment, or you could be the relative helping um, you know, pay up for that abortion. You could be sued because of this. Um, not only that, but if you're successful in this case, um, you can receive a, you know, at least $10,000 in damages. So it really... Um, incentivizes kind of everyday people to enforce this law, not the state. Tammy, uh, the justices yesterday, according to most court observers, informed court observers, seem to suggest that the Texas law certainly is deserving of challenge because it does, some of the justices suggested, does deny women their constitutional right to choose an abortion. So it looks like this case will move forward uh, and that Texas law will be challenged. Right. Um, and the justices, particularly uh, Justice Kagan, um, was very poignant in a lot of her feedback and comments, um, especially the point about, you know, so no one can sue, right? So I myself um, cannot sue to have bodily autonomy over self. So it puts the control of my person in the hands of someone else. So therefore, it is not me who has ownership of my body. Someone else does because they can take legal action and I don't have remedy. Um, I also found it fascinating um, with um, uh, Justice Kagan discussing almost the rejection of the supremacy of the Supreme Court and of the federal government. Um, and if we understand that from a federalism standpoint, rejecting the supremacy clause of the Constitution weakens the federal government, which is akin to going back to Articles of Confederation, where the states had more supremacy over the federal government. So we have to be clear. Um, and then if I could just make two other points, um, um, it denies a medical procedure. Let's be clear, an abortion is a medical procedure. So we're denying medical care for, again, a person. Um, and, and then if I could just swing back to Virginia real quick. Um, I find it interesting <laughs> that if we were to challenge Toni Morrison's book or any text of that nature, then what we're doing is we are rejecting the, the quote-unquote summer of social justice, right? So either the summer of social justice was for not, 
when there was a reality of the differences of individuals um, or we forgot or was inauthentic. So I think we have to pay attention. Um, Chuck Cook, let me go back to the Supreme Court yesterday. Uh, uh, Tammy Greer set it up for us. Justice Kagan was particularly vocal on this notion of federal authority. We're going to play a quick soundbite. You're going to hear her talk about Ex Parte Young, which was a 1908 court decision that said that a federal court can stop a state from enforcing a law the constitutionality of which has been challenged, and the constitutionality of the Texas abortion law has been challenged. Here's what Justice Kagan said. The entire point of this law, its purpose and its effect, is to find the chink in the armor of Ex parte Young. That Ex parte Young set out a basic principle of how our government is supposed to work and how people can seek review of unconstitutional state laws. And the fact that after, oh, these many years, some geniuses came up with a way to evade the commands of that decision as well as the command that the broader, even, the even broader principle that states are not to nullify federal constitutional rights. And to say, oh, we've never seen this before, so we can't do anything about it. Um, I, I guess I just don't understand the argument. Chuck, Justice Kagan also pointed out that if this law in Texas stands where citizens can, can be the ones who enforce the law, then people could fight gun, law, gun uh, rights laws in states like Georgia on the same basis. Yeah, the, the, you know, I, I went to law school a long time ago, and I haven't heard reference to Inri Young since then. Um, but Inri <laughs> Young is a Ex parte Young is a very important case, and I think it will be the hinge point of this decision. Um, the key, as you pointed out, is, is simply about whether the law can be challenged. The one, the one district court judge who actually ruled on the law and found the law unconstitutional is in the federal government's lawsuit. But the Fifth Circuit said, oh, you can't sue. Sorry, you, you, know, you can't attack this. Supreme Court's about to overrule the Fifth Circuit, and they're going to overrule the Fifth Circuit. And it's going to be at least seven, maybe all nine justices that say, you know what, you Expert Young says we can you can sue on this. Which, by the way, uh, Tamar, is not to say that on December second, when the U.S. Supreme Court hears the Mississippi abortion case, which which Georgia will have a great stake in, that they may not use that to overturn Roe v. Wade. Exactly. That's the case that that people are really watching. What's so interesting about the Texas law is that it has to do with the way that that. Um, law is being enforced. But the one that the, the big kahuna that could um, overturn, you know, 50 years of of history in the United States, December 2nd with the Mississippi case. OK, now, why does the court's ruling so far or what we think will be their decision on Texas matter in Georgia? Because we've already heard Georgia legislators, Republicans saying they're going to introduce similar legislation to allow citizens to enforce abortion laws here in the state. Wow. Thank you for covering so much ground as we completely run out of time today on Political Rewind. What a meaty conversation. Uh, Chuck Cook, Renee Alegria, Tammy Greer, Tamar Hallerman, thank you so much for the show today. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll talk about election results and a lot more. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Yes, keep wearing your mask. It's not that difficult. 
And if you're as old as I am, your booster shot is waiting for you as close as your neighborhood pharmacy. Take care, everybody. Thank you.